Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows there's nothing spookier than capitalism. Today we have Ozzy, Zoe, and Adelaide. And today we're joined by Cade Griffiths, who's a member of the editorial board of Spectre Journal. Um, Spectre is a relatively new Marxist journal that started up during the pandemic. Uh, They specifically focus on what we might call intersectional or identity-based struggles, or as Spectre puts it on their website, the fact of difference um, and the ways that those intersect with capitalism. Uh, So, Kay, do you want to start off by introducing yourself to our listeners um, and feel free to mention other work you do outside of Spectre as well? Sure. Yeah, um, I'm Cade, uh, and yeah, I'm on the the editorial board of Spectre magazine. I'm also uh, an anthropologist and ethnographer. I teach at Brooklyn College, and I also teach classes that anybody can sign up for at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. And so far, there I've taught anthropology, and I've also taught a class on transgender Marxism. I'm teaching one. Oh my currently. God! I want to take that um, class. Yeah. In fact, this is this has been great. The, the last week is on Sunday. The last class is on Sunday. And it's been one of my favorite classes I've taught in years. Um, and it's based on a collection of of essays that I contributed to, but that one of my uh, friends, one of my exes actually, uh, edited. Classic. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, so we've we've had a really good time with that. And I'm hoping that I get to do that class again. Um but actually, I would say a little bit about just to say a little bit about Spectre. Uh, I would say we we're going to get it. to it. Just as oh, just okay. in, I, it's very important for us to know your sun, moon, and rising as part of an introduction. Oh, that's, by the way, that's crucial. You can hear my son back there, Sal. No, my son sign <laughs> is a uh, Taurus. Uh, my moon is Libra, and my rising is Leo. Wow, I'm a Libra moon. I freaking love Leo risings, and also happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to be on May 15th if anybody wants to uh, come Venmo to Cade. <laughs> Venmo me. Yes. <laughs> Incredible. I love that. Thank you for um, understanding the importance. Amazing. Well, as you were about to get into, um, could you tell us the like origin story of Spectra? Yeah, so um, basically, the all the members of the editorial board, most of them are people that I've known in various ways and capacities for a long time. Uh, Charlie Post and David McNally, who are two of the editors, are like longtime political mentors of mine. Uh, Zach Levinson uh, is is a longtime comrade and a sociologist. We both study South Africa, so we've been very good friends for a long time. And all of us kind of found ourselves at a... Uh, point in our political lives where we were not members of any organization um, and uh, sort of at 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 loose ends, you know, for, for, you know, Marxists are like bees in a hive, like you have to have an organization or a publication. Um, and uh, we sort of got together and started thinking about what kind of publication um, we thought there needed to be and what the purpose of it should be. And um, the idea there, the idea of Spectra came out of that. And the idea was to do a few different things. One, to have a serious print journal um, that's a home for revolutionary Marxist theory and also politics, right? That this shouldn't be just a matter of theory, but, but uh, you know, applied to the political uh, realities of the day. Um, it's kind of not Marxism if you don't do that, in my opinion. Uh, but also 
um, uh, one that looks at Marxism as a method, right, as a living uh, method that incorporates um, new ideas, new experiences, new struggles into the theory of Marxism. Um, and everybody who was involved was very much, uh, um, had been very committed to Marxist feminism in particular for quite a long time. Um, but we really wanted it to be a space that would do that. And also a space that was open to thinkers and activists of coming from lots of different Marxist traditions, right? Like we, uh, most of the most of the editors come from uh, a kind of heterodox Trotskyist Marxism and Marxist feminism, but we really wanted to be a space that would be open to revolutionary Marxisms that come from a, a lot a lot of different places, and also revolutionary anarchisms that come from a lot of different places, um, and be a space you know not only to kind of share ideas across those sectarian kinds of divides and, and, and historical kinds of divides, but also um, you know potentially to build. Uh, solidarities across those divides, right? Um, and sort of re-group uh, um, some of the forces of revolutionary communist and Marxist and socialist thought that have uh, been kind of uh, torn asunder in various ways to varying degrees over the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, and certainly also over the last uh, 10 to 12 years, there's been a big, um, you know, uh, um, change up in terms of membership of various socialist organizations and that kind of thing. So we wanted to be a much more kind of open, collaborative space. We really wanted the magazine to be in print. We thought that was very important and to be beautiful. And I think uh, you will see that it is, um, which is rare, I think, <laughs> for Marxist journals. And that's yeah, really no shame no, it's amazing. Journals, but it really um, is. <laughs> we really wanted, we really wanted uh, to incorporate art as part of the idea of what revolutionary politics are about. Um, and so I think, you know, so far we've done Okay, at most of that, uh, um, in addition to the print journal, we also have like a web uh, journal that we're, we have articles that are only published online, and that's if they're particularly timely, but also just, you know, there's only so much space in a print journal, um, but we can publish online more things than we can in the print journal. So um, I definitely encourage anybody who uh, is looking for places, looking for home for the writing um, that's along these lines to contact us because, uh, we are always open to hearing about articles, uh, new issues, new uh, analyses that we can publish, on, especially on the web. Yeah, I love that. I feel like um, when I first came to Marxism, it's like it was so saturated with this like cis man hetero energy. And like, so I think so many of us gravitated to uh Marxist feminism or and you know being able to then expand that to a queer lens to a trans lens to um an anti-carceral lens and like all of that so because you know we can have many critiques of the original writing of Marxism and understand that also we live in a society that changes over time so I love that what you touched on kind of brings all of those elements together yeah and I would say there just isn't uh there's a lot of individual kinds of queer Marxism or individual books and articles and things I can think of that really do that. But uh, there isn't, there isn't a whole lot of uh, sort of home for that kind of thinking. And usually people who are trying to do that kind of thinking are running up against obstacles within their own intellectual and political communities. Um, so I think 
part of the goal was definitely to uh, create more space for that where that wasn't the sort of initial uh, hurdle that anybody had to cross to kind of do some of that work. Um, I would say also, I did come up with the name Spectre, um, uh, but yes. initially I wanted the, I wanted the, the subheading the subtitle of the journal to be uh, a journal of, rad of revolutionary abolition. Um, and that was voted down. And I just have to say, I was so right about that. Um, that is in fact where we should have gone with that. Uh, that of course became like the slogan of the uprising. Well, I have no idea what my dog is doing in there. I'm sorry to tell you. Um, the dog is but, part of the podcast. Yeah. He's, I think, throwing a fit about going, taking a nap. He gets upset. <laughs> he's sleepy. Um, and he just gets <laughs> Really? Uh, but yeah, eventually he's going to lay down and go to sleep, I think. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of where the idea for Spectre came from. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask more about like the mission and kind of like editorial vision that y'all have. Um, I was looking at your Twitter bio um, and it describes Spectre as a journal that, quote, understands anti-oppression struggles as constitutive of class struggle. Um, we actually just did an episode where we talked about kind of like what intersectionality does and doesn't mean to us. Um, and we're talking just about how this is like a common thing we run up against. And I guess I was just wondering if you could talk more about like what that means to you all, like to have um, class struggle be constituted by anti-oppression struggles. Yeah, I think the best way to talk about this to me is really like in concrete historical examples or concrete political examples um because real but you know overall the idea of, of marxist thought is that there is a proletariat that's the most uh that's the majority of people right um and uh the proletariat is being uh, exploited and oppressed right by a ruling class um who's in the proletariat has often been a huge subject of Marxist debate, right? And that's where a lot of these kinds of questions of chauvinism and uh, oppression or um, some, some Marxists call it special oppression, which I always think is really weird, um, uh, come in. But, it's just special um, oppression. <laughs> my oppression is very special. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the task of the proletariat historically, right, is to become a force uh through solidarity um, within uh, and among uh, working class people um, become a force for itself. And solidarity among working class people is definitionally a question of working together across difference, working together across difference. And that's like not just difference of race, class and gender, but it's also difference of job category, right? Even in the same factory, you have workers pitted against each other based on whether you're the machinist or you're working on the you know the production line um and so you know just even basic union solidarity is about people uh acting in solidarity maybe against their own immediate uh precise interests but toward a larger shared interest right um and so i think that's partly how i would see how i would explain seeing these kinds of oppressions as constitutive of of class exploitation right um so, you know, there's just a whole lot of great examples. Um, but one one I would give is just from my own kind of family history, which is uh, my grandfather was a was an organizer in the oil workers union in Port Arthur, Texas. Um, and I grew up listening to him talk about union organizing stories uh, over the Thanksgiving table. And um, I didn't really fully realize, you know, his kind of whole political context until I went to 
college at NYU and studied that, but he would tell me about how in the 1940s, um, his union organized the uh, black workers who worked on the Coke docks at the refineries, right? Um, and this was under segregation. This was when the jobs were totally segregated. White people worked inside the plant and black folks worked outside. Um, but his point was always, you know, if you organize the black workers for, first, then everybody's going to want a union, right? Um, and turns out that was like the particular organizing line of uh, the Communist Party <laughs> during that period, uh, I think I realized much later. But he has a point, right? And this is true if you look at, for example, the struggle for a union at Starbucks today, right? Trans people are very much like in the lead as organizers in that. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, uh, one, of, one of which is a lot of trans people work at Starbucks because they offered health care early and often. Uh, not great health care, but some health care. Um, but also because um, you know, trans people have all kinds of problems at work. Uh, everybody has to use the bathroom. Um, being trans in a situation where using the bathroom might endanger your job uh, or endanger your physical safety in terms of policing and so forth uh, becomes a problem uh, that, in fact, like can highlight the the problem that everybody has with this. If you're working in a highly tailorized, highly fast paced job. You know, the bathroom is a problem for every boss, right? People have to use the bathroom, but it costs them money. Um, it's just extra true for trans people, and trans people uh, have long been kind of key organizers, but also key kind of fulcrums for organizing in job situations where that particular issue comes up. And that's not that's not new. There's this, you know, if you go back and look at the um, uh, the Detroit news strike. Um, one of the key issues was, in fact, about a trans woman and whether or not she could use the women's restroom at work. Um, and that was, you know, I guess 40 years ago now. I'm getting so old, I forget which how many decades there are between me and the 1970s and 80s sometimes. Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess that that's sort of how I would look at it. Um, and I think, you know, that's really Spectre's mission is less that we're like, uh, you know, good hearted uh allies of all the oppressed people and, and want to focus on this, it's more that it's not Marxism if you don't do this, right? It's not Marxism if you don't think actually about what the real conditions of working people's specific particular lives are and how that uh, inhibits or promotes or could do one or the other uh, solidarity across workplaces, across cities, across countries, and across the entire working class. So. Totally. Yeah, I think the Starbucks example is a really good one, mm -hmm. too, because it's one where like we saw Starbucks then threatening to take away uh, coverage of various trans healthcare stuff um, in response because trans people were so visible as organizers um, in part. So like, you know, trans folks being the one leading things, but also like being targeted first um, by these corporations. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, if you look at it from a, a larger class perspective, that's what oppression is. It's you're a target, right? And if you're not, in fact, sticking up for the, the working class people who are targeted, then you're not doing working class solidarity, right? You're doing something else. Um, and you're doing cis solidarity, you're doing white solidarity, which is, you know, definitively not right. the same. Sounds bad when you put it like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does. It does. It is bad, actually, turns out. Um, yeah. Uh... I love that. Um, 
So, okay, it's, you know, it's, it's 2023. I wrote in our notes 2022 because time is fake. Like, what year is it? It's 2023. So, you know, more people, I guess, are less on the Red Scare, just to like general population. But at the same time, Marxism is not like a mainstream thing. For example, um, I'm a musician and I played a show recently and traded a different band that was playing gave me a shirt and I traded um, some of our Season of the Bee merch. Uh, shout out seasonofthebee.com. <laughs> but we have March or March Mer- Marks on some merch. Marks merch. Marks merch. Yeah. Exactly. So Classic. <laughs> Where he's um, wearing a binky. It's very powerful. Um, and I asked <laughs> this musician. Because uh, he had given me that merch. I was like, how do you feel about Marx? And he was like, Marx Red Hots, which apparently is a hot dog spot in Rochester, New York. Shout out. Um, sounds amazing, honestly. But um, I was like, no, Karl Marx. <laughs> so, and we had like a, a couple run-ins recently. Uh, I know Zoe and I did where, where people weren't sure who, who Marx was. So... Um, person. Person But anyway, all that to say, like, what is it like running a Marxist journalist in 2023? What is the most rewarding element? What is the most challenging? Like, what is that all about for y'all? Well, I'm going to have to get historicist with you a little bit. Sorry, you didn't actually ask this question, but no, I'm going to answer it. No, sorry, first um, of all, which is our slogan, basically. And second of all, please do. So, I mean, I'm, I'm in fact, on May 15th, going to turn 42 years old. Um, the Life, the Universe, and Everything number, I expect to know that on by the 15th. Uh, yes. But um, uh, I became a, 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 yeah, I became a socialist and a Marxist probably around, uh, 22 years ago, something like that. Um, and maybe actually a little before that. Yeah, 23 years ago. And in fact, I part of it was I was reading, um, and I'm, this is a, a little embarrassing for me because I'm not a social democrat, but reading my dad's copy of Michael Harrington's uh, biography, autobiography, I think. Uh, no, Michael Harrington's socialism on the plane flying to New York when I moved to New York in the year 2000. And I was reading it and thinking, you know, I agree with this guy, but like, uh, socialism, like it's kind of crazy to call yourself a socialist. Of course, I was like flying from Texas, where I grew up, to New York City, um, and I got off the plane and I went to a club fair and I was looking for political organization to join. And I in, first encountered a, a socialist organization. I will leave unnamed, um, uh, and got into an argument with one of the main organizers there about revolutionary violence, which I was against at the time. Um, but mostly, I also Got into uh, an argument with with her really about what was the point of calling ourselves socialists, right? We might all know we're socialists, but like that's such a turnoff in the year 2000 for so many people that there's, I don't really know why we would bother saying this out loud. Um, Whomst among know, us. Right. And so you know, <laughs> when I mentioned my grandfather earlier, you know, it turns out my grandfather was a member of the Communist Party. I never said that to me. He, he was a member of the Communist Party when it was underground and it was. I'm so obsessed uh, with that was banned and you know i even interviewing him about his work once i was aware that that was true i still couldn't really bring myself to ask him like are you now or have you ever been um you know even like the even though 
when he first heard I was doing union organizing, he was like, so are you an anarchist? And I was like, no, I don't think so. Are you a socialist? I don't know, Grandpa. Are you a communist? I don't know. And he's like, that's what they all say, right? Um, which was his own, <laughs> his own admission of this, right? But like, that's what things were like in the year 2000, even if you were like a kind of political movement heavy, even if you were very involved in like anti-globalization, disruptive activism, which I, I was at a certain juncture, um, calling yourself a socialist or a Marxist, especially, you know, kind of especially really put your, put you in a radical fringe of a, of a, of a radical fringe in a way that like has just been increasingly not true across my adult life. Like I, I teach at CUNY, um, you know, which actually has a long history of Marxist professors teaching there. Uh, and 2008, I was riding the subway to go teach a class and found out that Lehman brothers had failed and that we were, you know, headed for this big, uh, financial crisis. And, uh, I thought to myself, you know, man, I always wanted to be a, a Marxist professor at CUNY during the Great Depression. Um, and I guess I guess that happened. But like immediately, my students kind of conception of their own social class changed my students willingness to kind of talk about um, the radical history of CUNY uh, to talk about class politics. And really just like I, I had always done this exercise that was like asking students to identify themselves as what what kind of what class they're from and everybody would say middle class and this is cuny where in fact everybody is working class um like a few people would say poor everybody would say middle class and then you know maybe there'd be one kid there who was like a rich kid slumming it at cuny um for whatever reason who would say that they were not you know they were rich or something but for the most part everybody said middle class like kind of after 2008 that stopped happening people started identifying as as working class um and that changed things a lot. And then, of course, this kind of Bernie Sanders moment where Bernie Sanders said democratic socialism, you know, on prime time and people Googled it and joined the DSA in uh, mass, I think really made the word socialism a much less terrifying word in the general public sphere. Socialist became a thing that you could be um, for good and for bad. Right. It both became a thing that you could be. And that's great. I think that's overall for good. But it also became a thing where, you know, now the the transsexual Jewish communist immigrant African conspiracy is coming for, you know, every right winger on the planet. And like, we are out, we're out as communists, we're out as transsexuals. And so it's it's a moment of, of higher confrontation because we can't actually deny the things that we are that they're saying that are true, right? I am a communist and trans. Um, that's not a that's not a slur. That's not a a, a sort of fantastic imagination. Um, uh, I'm those things, and I am the I am the enemy of 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 people who want to eliminate my friends and family and my uh, hopes for the future for for all of us. Um, so, on a certain level, that's good. That's the only way this stuff ever happens. And on another level, it's it's a little intense, right? Yeah, totally. And I think that um, what you were talking about really reminds me of something I was curious about. I saw on the website for the journal that there's um, folks have started kind of independent reading groups where they like read the journal and discuss together. And um, they were described as, quote, a link to reading discussion and debate to organizing and action, which to brag also kind of remind me about the podcast. We've had a lot of people write in that the podcast has like led them to get involved locally in organizing. And, you know, we see this connection between having these platforms where we are able to like share this information and make it digestible and 
you know, connect it to all of these, you know, current issues, like you're saying, and not just this, like, uh, kind of ethereal, like, theory in its, um, like, base original form. And so I was just curious, kind of, to hear, A, like, what those reading groups look like, or the ex- the extent to which you know about that, because I know they kind of function separately from the journal, and, like, your view on the importance of political education. Oh, I mean, I think politi- political education is incredibly important. And every time I'm a member of kind of any organization, one of that's one of the first things I try to help organize. And, you know, partly that's I being an educator is my calling. Um, so it's a good job for me to help organize. But also, uh, I think it is it is an important task of anybody who wants to build any kind of uh, resistant, even reformist, but especially revolutionary politics. Um, and that education in that sense, cannot just mean reading a debate. Uh, it also, like, one of the one of the ways that you learn politics is doing politics. Um, you know, certainly, like, I've, uh, before I before I became a, a professor, to the extent that I am a professor, um, I, uh, I w- did a whole lot of union organizing, both as a volunteer, um, as uh, paid staff for various kinds of organizations that did some worker organizing and union organizing. And, uh, you know, of course, I've also done lots of organizing of trans community and so forth. And that those experiences are the ones that most deeply shape, I think, my politics. Um, But that would be less true, I think, if I didn't have a place to go back and talk about theory and history with both people who have longer, older, more experienced experiences than me, and and also people who have a good handle on the history of class struggle and a good handle on theories of class struggle, because that gives you a context to understand your wins and your losses, the kinds of uh, conflicts you get into in, in the context of organizing. Um, so to me, that's all political education, uh, and, and, and that's all very necessary. And I think that's one of the things that Spectre does quite well, is in fact bring together people um, in various kinds of ways, reading groups among them, but also conferences, uh, conference panels, and various other kinds of meetings, uh, where we're trying to bring together people who both have that kind of long experience and grasp of of Marxist theory and 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 class, the history of class struggle, and people who are you know uh, engaged in, in important organizing uh, that's taking place today. I'm like, those aren't necessarily separate people, but um, sometimes they are, right? And of course, you know, there's there's always a kind of generational aspect to thinking about left politics, things like McCarthyism, but also just things like, you know, the Reagan moment uh, really have had a way of dividing off various generations and experiences of working class organizing, of left-wing organizing, and left-wing thought and theory between generations, right? And so organization, political education, uh, and I think publications play a very important role in that, um, are kind of the only ways to reconnect that history, right? They're not going to do that for us on Netflix. That's something that we kind of have to do for ourselves. Uh, and I, I think I'm, I, well, I will say I'm, I'm always trying to do that. Um, that's sort of one of my prime directives in life in whatever way I can to bring bring people together along historical threads, theoretical threads that should know each other um, and might not in part because of, of uh, differences in age and experience and immediate context. I fucking love that fellow educator. I mean, like a lot of us are educators, but yeah, I'm like, it's, um, 
It does. I mean, I thought the same thing as you, Zoe. I was like, wow, this is actually really similar to Season of the Bitch. And I didn't mean it in like, as, like in any way, but I do feel like, you know, we've done reading groups too. And like, I think there's just something about being able to approach a topic from a billion different perspectives. And like all of us have different perspectives. Um, and obviously, you know. Um, Y'all should do a trans, transgender Marxism reading group on the book. I would. I would. We'll do it. We'll do it. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, the people, the people willing, you know. But uh, yes, happy to help. Um, the people yeah. of our Patreon would definitely will it. Yeah, they would. <laughs> that is it. our crowd for sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> um. So this is a, I guess, a bit of a weird question, but um. So I read the article y'all published. I know you didn't write it specifically, but um, on, I hope I read it. <laughs> on sexuality in lockdown, um, and we talk a lot on the pod about the media's role and impact on society, as well as the mainly regressive laws that get put into place. Um. But it had me thinking, and this goes outside of that article, but it just made me curious as to what your thoughts were on queerness and government in general, because you focus on the U.S. and the U.K., and it made me think about the ways in which queerness always exists, often outside of the confines or borders that governments implement. Um, And I just was curious about your thoughts on that, I guess. Okay, queerness and government. Queerness across borders. Okay. Um, I mean, one thing I would say is sexuality is our superpower as queer people. And I, I often actually think in kind of like one of the things that I, I would say struggle positively, like as in like struggle with comrades of uh, about yes. trans politics with younger trans people than me, um, you know, age younger. I, I'm fairly trans young myself as a, as a simultaneously somebody who's been involved in trans life and politics for about 20 years i'm Isn't also that just the way <laughs> somebody who who, who is also at a, a lockdown hatchling um yes. i didn't actually like uh start going by he him pronouns or or start begin transitioning until uh a year and a half ago or something like that um so i i feel like i have like a time warp generational perspective about this but in terms of like younger queers who are kind of like raised on queer politics of the internet i think took on a lot of the most conservative public face of the gay liberation movement, even the radical queer liberation movement that de-emphasized sexuality as the engine of queerness uh, and, and the the motivation, a big motivation, right? To break rules, to disappoint your parents, a big part of the motivation to fuck up your job, job prospects, right? Is like, are you going to be able to live the kind of life you want? And sexuality has a whole lot to do with that. Um, and it's certainly part of what has organized my life uh, in ways that I have very few regrets about in terms of being, uh, you know, I've lived in different countries. I, uh, you know, uh, at one point got married in South Africa, um, got divorced uh, not too long after when I got back to New York. Um, but those are all experiences that I am so glad that I had uh, that to me that those don't feel like failures, even though they're failures of the kind of heterosexual norm. There's there are experiences that I've had through which I've learned so much about myself and so much about the world that 
I see that really as as the queer superpower. So of course governments don't like us, right? Of course yeah. governments want to try to find ways to contain that. Um, and of course queerness has always been this kind of transnational uh, force, both like both the consequence, right, of 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 the real existence of transnational politics and economy and its own force within that, right? So, you know, one of the things we were talking about in my trans Marxism class on Sunday was kind of exactly the history of of queerness, uh, queer and trans people in capitalism really becoming uh, centered on port cities, right? And this is something that you will find if you read Chauncey's Gay New York, you'll find this in Foucault, you'll find this in lots of really, really excellent texts. Um, but there's a reason for that, right? It's like if once you get to the point where uh, heterosexuality is so inculcated into a given culture that being queer kicks you out of your family, but also where the political economy has developed to a point where you can go get a job at the docks, right? That there's such a thing as leaving home and going to the big city and finding your way, right? Those are the those are the centers of where uh, working class queer life originated and developed. Not coincidentally, those are the same places, right, that you find as the hot points of struggle for the Black Atlantic, right? Like Manchester and London and New York and Atlanta and New Orleans. Um, uh, and the yeah, that's not a coincidental overlap that has everything to do with uh, the danger of what Marx calls double freedom, right? Like the part of the joke of double freedom is it's the freedom to live under a bridge, right? You have the freedom to sell your labor on the market. Um, and if you fail, you have the freedom to starve to death and sleep without a house. But also you're free of other constraints. You're free to make your own choice about what kind of life you want to lead and live. And this has produced so much of anything we might think of as culture, as art, as, uh, you know, music, um, fashion, uh, like all of that comes out of precisely that, you know, as Janis Joplin, also from Port Arthur, Texas, just like my family put it, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Um, Powerful. That's one of the most Marxist statements that could be. Uh, so, yeah. Queer, we love queer, to see it. <laughs> people are dangerous because we are in a certain way. Uh, triply free, right? We're free from exclusion from the family, which is the historic condition of queer people, even if it is not all of our immediate conditions, uh, is mm -hmm. its own kind of freedom and its own kind of danger or, or precarity, right? But it certainly does give you a lot of room to be creative. It's not kind of just a weird accident that queer people make all the art and all the fashion um, and have all the best ideas about that. Uh, that's that's what happens when you're allowed to decide how to be yourself and fight yeah, for that. Yeah, totally. I wanted to ask more about that, actually, because I know you've done some work around family abolition. Um, and since we're talking about queer people and the family, um, I guess I just wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about the political role you see the family playing today and kind of like, I don't know, what your ideal vision would be for how kids would be raised or like how how personal lives would be organized um in you know after the revolution okay so uh political role of the family let me start with that that's a much easier question than the second part of the question um political role of the family i mean so the piece that uh, i think most people are referring to when they talk about me writing about family abolition is called kinder communismus which a name I did not choose, and neither did my co-author. My co-author of that piece is uh, Juliana Joanne Gleason, um, who's also the editor of Transgender Marxism, for, that, for the record. Uh, and 
she and I wrote this piece. I just want to say, if you go read it, I do highly recommend you read it. It is kind of like cult classic. It's been republished in like six different languages in various times and places. Um, but it's it was written at a period where we were really both very ensconced in kind of like online Marxist spaces, left-wing Marxist spaces that were very dominated by cis men, straight cis men. Um, and so it's written in this way where like, there's almost no, I think maybe no reference to like queer or trans anything specifically. Um, what we were trying to do was kind of theorize the position of queer people uh, in capitalism. And that required thinking about the family in capitalism. And this was also related to my own doctoral work in South Africa and so forth. But um that's where we really started writing about it. And we went back to the Communist Manifesto, which of course uh, calls for the abolition of the family, um, precisely because it is a site of hierarchy and of oppression and of violence. Uh, and and one that kind of, it's, it's the place where workers get trained to be obedient and compliant workers. It's the place where workers are reproduced to have the capacity to, to work. That's uh, So all of those things, but we were really trying to think about what a revolution would mean for that kind of, for the conditions for, for social reproduction in the context of the family. And we were both thinking about that at periods where I think our uh, own queerness and family uh, life were coming into a certain amount of conflict. Um, and so, well, and, and I think there's a kind of, I don't want to say, well, I'm going to say liberal queer uh, um, reaction to the generally negative response of both kind of uh, straight conservative families, but also straight liberal families to queer people is to have to, to fall back on this kind of idea of chosen family. Like, so instead of having our family that doesn't want us, we're going to pick our own family and be a family. And our argument there really was that the family is, to the extent it, it is the source of delivering you food, housing, love, uh, your sense of self, uh, the ability to, you know, reproduce socially and, and biologically, right? Like that is necessarily also a, a site of coercion and violence, right? There's always a threat that it can be taken away, right? If that's the place where it comes from and it's down to kind of people's emotions and feelings about you, uh, that means you can always fuck up and get kicked out. And that does it's not like that doesn't happen in chosen families. It certainly does. So we wanted to think about that and try to propose, you know, just kind of what you asked me was like, what's the correct vision. So we didn't want to just stop at the critique. We wanted to propose some kind of idea of, of a future. So we came up with this idea of the crash. And I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. I don't think we actually know the answer to that, to be honest with you. We did kind of look at a lot of the historical examples. There's a lot of really shitty ones from like the worst parts of the Soviet Union, Romanian orphanages and so forth. We acknowledge that, that like state taking care of babies is not the ideal situation at all. But the ideal situation is some version of free association. And that includes, I think, children. Um, one of the podcast episodes of y'all's I listened to really hit on the idea that children's liberation kind of necessarily comes out of a trans politic. And for me, that was very true of the experience of writing Kindercom with Jules, both in terms of reflecting on both of our childhoods, but also I was already a parent by then. I had a small child. My child's now 12. Um, so I think my kid was like three or four when we were writing this. And I was thinking a lot about how to be, you know, not a good parent in communism, but how to be a good parent to this child right now in the context of our lives. And so I think there's really what we have to do is bridge that whole through line, right? The question of how does uh, the families that we 
ultimately all of us have chosen families, even the conservatives, even the liberals. We live in a society where you can simply not be in that family if you want. They could all have chosen families, right? They're choosing those families, often for material reasons, right? But what's the through That's line? That's a great point. I feel like I've never heard it articulated quite that way, but yeah. Yeah, you're choosing that, right? Like, um, and, and queer people know this because even the most coercive versions of this, we've escaped them. We've left abusive relationships. We've left abusive families, right? Um, so I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. I am saying it is a doable thing to do. Um, and I'm very pro, I think for me, queerness and transness is very much about a recognition that we do all have a choice about how we want to live. Um, and that's like about who we want to associate with. It's about how we want to present ourselves. It's about how we want to be, how we want to exist in our bodies, all of those things. And they're hard choices. I'm not saying they're not, they're easy choices, but they, they are choices. Um, and people have been making them like under conditions of slavery, of very harsh repression and, uh, threats of prison and so forth. Um, so what's the through line between the kinds of families we need to build not just to survive under capitalism today, but to be able to uh, support ourselves through a transition to communism, I think is actually where I would go if I was going to work right with Jules, the next iteration of Kindercom. We kind of, the crash part we wrote about is a little provocative. It's definitely listed as like a series of provocative uh, contradictions, basically. Um, like it will be, it'll be a, not anti-authoritarian, but also uh, um, uh, authoritative or something. I forget what all the lines are there because it's been a few years since we wrote that. But it's basically our description of it is listed as a series of provocations. We don't really talk about the state as much as we should. Um, we did actually do a podcast with uh, Michelle O'Brien where we went back and reflected on Kindercom, and that was the big question Michelle had was, uh, what about the state? But yeah, so that's what I think about the future of the family is that it won't be a family, um, but that does not mean uh, family evolution is about the abolition of human love, sociality, commitment, uh, fond feeling, uh, mutual growth and social reproduction. No, that's what we're for. Um, but how we're going to get there, I think, has a lot to do with how we organize ourselves now in the present. And it has a lot to do with how we think about how our chosen families and communities, in fact, function and operate and toward what end. Um, that's a little different than what role is the family playing in politics today. And I think that's related to some of the kinds of critiques of family abolition that people come up with. But I have been talking for like professor length at this point. So if anybody wants to interject before I get to the uh, what role does the family play in politics part, I'm happy to hear more. No, I mean, this just to cheer you on, this is brilliant, first of all. And secondly, like the fact that you could remember that third question, their third part of the question is inherently a, inspirational to me. Yeah, that's it is just professor brain. Like that's the job is like put the stack over here and then like call out of hands and then try to order it in a way that's going to sound coherent when you open your mouth. Um, Extremely powerful. So the, the uh, what role is the family playing in politics today? I think this is like vitally, vitally interesting. Like it, and it's massively contradictory and it's so much about us while also not us, I mean, queer people, but also not about us, right? Like on the one hand, right, they're terrified of us. They're passing these laws about how, people in Tennessee shouldn't be allowed to have testosterone because the existence of trans people is going to destroy the family. Well, okay. 
Like, I don't think a trans guy in Tennessee is really trying to do shit to anybody's family. He's just trying to exist. On the other hand, exactly the point I just made, that everybody is choosing their families, is a reality you can't deny when queer people exist and are visible in making those choices. Um, and so it presents an option that is otherwise unthinkable and repressed for most of most people most of the time. Um, and that's what they mean by that. Uh, the family in, whether we're talking about Republicans or Democrats, conservatives or liberals, represents some kind of or moral authority, right? Like this is the same reason we're talking about the children, the children and the family, right? Um, and that's because the family is its own kind of a heart of a heartless world, right? Like Mark said that about religion and, uh, you know, people always quote the, the opiate of the masses part and not the heart of a heartless world part. But what he was in fact saying was, this is where people go for respite from the aggressively alienated conditions of the market where they spend most of their time, right? Everywhere else, you have to think about how you're trying to, somebody's trying to get you and how you're going to get got. And if not, how you're going to get one over, right? But going to church or going home to your family is supposed to be the place where you don't have to think about that, where the solidarity exists by virtue of the space you're in. Um, whether or not that's true of any given family or, or families in general, that's the pull. That's the emotional register. That's the, not just emotional register, the material register, right? If you are uh, an immigrant family and, you know, half of your relatives don't have documentation and the other half do and so forth, right? Like your family is hopefully often organized around uh, sharing and protecting people with different kinds of conditions and statuses and needs and resources. Family is a place where redistribution happens. Increasingly, it is the only place where redistribution happens, right? Um, and so it feels very important and like it needs defense, but this is an atomizing, individualizing, conservatizing force, um, one that both Democrats and Republicans lean into. If you remember uh, during the Trump administration, there was a whole lot of stuff about uh, family reunification when people had been separated in immigrant detention, right? And this was like, this had a broad appeal across radicals and, and liberals. Um, but liberals forgot that, in fact, uh, Hillary Clinton was a big advocate for family reunification uh, under the Obama administration. And by that, she meant shipping home children to Central America who had escaped at great expense to their often very poor and oppressed families, right, uh, who could only afford to send one or two people out of danger, right? Um, danger, of course, instigated by U.S. intervention in Honduras and El Salvador. Um, she wanted to, quote unquote, reunify families by shipping those kids directly back to their parents. Um, and so I think the role that family plays in like mainstream politics is this kind of thought terminating cliche um, that sort of goes straight to the heart. It's like talking about apple pie and whatever else, but it's a way of just declaring the discussion closed. The best thing for children is to be with their parents. Uh, the best thing for parents is to be with their children. Everybody needs and has a family. And even if you don't, you probably feel like you do because you do, otherwise you won't survive. And it hits, it hits very hard in the emotional register. It is very hard, in fact, to do a kind of political analysis of the family and present that. Um, it is very emotional for everybody every time you do it. And if you leave out that emotional register, if you don't think about that part, I, it's a no-go, right? Like you can't actually do that kind of analysis. You have to be able to talk to people about what exactly you mean and what exactly you're talking about, while at the same time we can't possibly know what exactly 
the future that we're proposing looks like because the only way to find out is to is to move in that direction the only way, way to find out is to struggle together toward that end we can't know exactly what that will look like i do know i don't want my own child to be dependent on me for uh food and housing uh in a way that would give me the power to tell them what to do um uh with their lives with their bodies with their mind uh that might not be avoidable but what we're going to have to do in the meantime is figure out how best to organize ourselves uh, toward the imagine toward toward the horizon that we want to live in, toward the kind of relationships we want to have. Um, so I don't know if that was dodging the question, but that was that's my answer to that question. <laughs> no, totally. That was very thorough, and I think I mean one thing that I love about that piece is that y'all acknowledge that this is sort of like a scary thing to think about, especially for queer people when you get into critiques of chosen family which I think are really important and I, I love the way that that piece does that but um I think it can feel scary to people um when like we've worked so hard for these families um and like yeah I think I think it's just um it's good to acknowledge that that there's like that very visceral component to it um yeah no, and I'm, I guess... so not above appealing to my own family right if somebody comes from this has happened on Twitter I won't name any names either but like somebody at one point like blocked me and then was like you know queer people are just like this because they don't have any kids and I'm like I know damn well that this bitch knows I have a child we used to be friends on Facebook and like now you're just saying like my child isn't a like so I you know started tweeting about my family and my the sanctity of my child and stuff because like you know when somebody's coming for you like I'm gonna you want to pull out all those stops right like who are you to yell up about my poor innocent baby um yeah. yeah, I love the idea of like using that in reverse, I don't know, the like protect the children rhetoric, but you're like, I need to protect my child from transphobia, actually. Yeah, <laughs> facts though, facts on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, uh, in, in all seriousness, my family lives in Texas, my parent, grandparents, my parents, my child's grandparents live in Texas. And, uh, you know, if I, they proposed recently that my kid go and visit them alone in Texas this summer. And like, I had to stop and be like, no, because like, you know, I love Texas. I really hate liberal shitting on Texas. There's a lot of fantastic revolutionaries and amazing queer people in Texas and incredible history. Absolutely. All that is true. And also, if my kid goes there, I either have to tell her she's not allowed to say shit about like her entire life or anybody she knows right. to anyone. Or she just can't go there. And like, those are both bad options. To right. Me. Um, right. Because there's, there's a reporting clause right now. Anybody who hears... My kid talking about her life could, and in fact should, according to the state law, report my parents, me, to Department of Child Services in Texas. And like, that sucks. Like, right. I really do have yeah. to protect my kid from transphobia, you know? Totally. It's, yeah, absolutely terrifying. But um, on that note we're coming to the end of our time um but i wanted to ask if there's anything we didn't get to about specter your work that you want to put out there um and if there's anywhere that folks can follow all of the things that you do sure yeah you can usually find me on any social media under my actual whole name which is cade doyle griffiths um uh and i will send you all the links to my twitter and so forth um, I also do have a Patreon, which is a little bit in remission at the moment, but I'm planning on starting it up again. So I'll send you the link to that. In fact, I'm planning on restarting, oh, yeah. explaining where I've been for the last year and a half. Uh, 
to my Patreon subscribers and 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 promoting it again. So I'll send you that. Um, send him that birthday money. Yeah, exactly. And uh, well, and I used to do a little kind of podcast is probably the wrong word because just me talking at the mic for a while. But um, uh, I used to do a little bit of that on Patreon. I always post everything I write and anywhere I appear there. Um, and I am teaching at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, hopefully with some up- upcoming anthropology, and I hope trans Marxism classes. So anybody who's interested in that should check out the website for BISR. Um, and otherwise, uh, I think everybody should uh, um, organize their workplace. That's what I actually think. Um, and if, <laughs> uh, if you want advice about that, let me know. Uh, I've, I've been known to uh, uh, hand that out Um as freely as possible to anybody who wants it. Absolutely. Um, well, yeah, thank you. Yes. Amazing. I mean, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for being with us. This was so nice. That was our episode. Thanks y'all for joining us. Um, another big thanks to Cade for being on. We had some like scheduling difficulties with this one. So we're really happy that we finally brought it together. Yeah. Um, after you check out Spectre, check out Cade's Patreon. Uh, you can also head to patreon.com slash season of the bitch, where you can send some money our way. Um, if you like what you hear and want to make it so we can keep talking to great guests like Cade. Um, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee. Um, and rate us in all of your favorite podcast listening places. Um, yeah. Give us nice reviews if you're going to review us, because otherwise we will cry. <laughs> Thank you. So true. <laughs> mm-hmm. And go uh, to seasonofthebee.com and get your cute little crop tops for the summer. Oh, yes. yeah, those cute little crop tops. I wear mine all the time. Yes, it, they're they're wonderful. They're, it's very comfy. We all, we all we earnestly all wear are wearing our merch all the time because it's so comfortable. So true. Uh, anyway, uh, love y'all so much. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Season of the Bitch. <laughs>